6.40. This morning I set myself a goal of finishing at a certain time. And I blew past it like a madman in a runaway train. I regretted it. I've repented before the Lord of not keeping to the time that I promised the people that I would do it. He has told me I'm forgiven. So I'm feeling free like I've got a fresh start. And, um, and so tonight I'm going to try again, finish by quarter two. No, I'm joking. We will definitely. It's <laughs> exactly what I said this morning. We'll definitely be done by half past. No, we will. The problem is, you see, I'm preaching on parenting which is uh, one of my to- topics I love preaching on. I, I love being a child, and I love being a dad, and I love partnering with Linda in parenting our children. And um, I think as God speaks to this, you might be saying, well, like a couple of weeks ago when I preached on marriage, I don't have kids. I'm going to dial out of this one, or maybe my kids are grown up. It's too late. They are what they are now. What can I do? There is still an opportunity for you to repent, get hold of your children, and say sorry if you got it wrong. What's happening, Geraldine? Oh, you're doing your hair. I thought it was code, but I thought I'd missed something there. <laughs> um, but, uh, but also, it's great for us to understand our relationship with God, who is our Father. One of the songs that we love to sing is, He is a good, good Father. And He is a good Father. He's not just a good Father in the sense that He's far away and sends us money. There's that kind of good Father. That's the kind of good Father Matthew has at the moment. He li- he's living and doing life in South Africa, and every month money lands in the bank account. He goes, oh, I've got a good, good father. And sometimes we think of, of, I have any father like that, but he's a good, good father in that he's neither indulgent, nor is he absent, nor is he abusive, nor is he harsh. And as we go through the way that God calls us to parent our children, I think it gives us understanding of how he parents us in the, the stuff that we love, those parenting moments that we just absolutely revel in, and the stuff that we don't love so much. When the Lord comes to discipline us and to and we go through tough seasons and we feel like He's not caring us and He's a good, good Father through all of that and hopefully we'll see some of that tonight. So in our Colossians series, Colossians 3 verse 20 um, through to 21 says, um, I'm just setting my timer. I think it's a few minutes slower. There we go. Why does it please, oh sorry, <laughs> that isn't what the scripture says, that's my next point. Colossians 3 verse 20 to 21 says this. Children, obey your parents in everything. What a great verse. For this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, uh, lest they become discouraged. So when I went into this, there was the first thing that, the question that springs to my mind is, why does it please the Lord for children to obey their parents in everything? Because that's exactly what it says here. And I think number one, and I want to get through these relatively quickly, is that it it glorifies God when when we reflect who He is. Doesn't it? And when we, Jesus says, if you love one another the way that I've loved you, then the world will know that we are his disciples. There is something that glorifies God when he is reflected in our lives, in our marriages, in the kind of employees we are or employers we are, citizens we are, neighbors we are. Whenever God is seen in us, it is, it brings glory to his name. And we see that in the life of Jesus Christ, who was the most perfect son he we walked in absolute obedience to his father even to the point of going to the cross he asked his father if it's possible is there another way can we go that way please father he says but yet not my will be done but yours be done and he says in his high priestly prayer before he went to the cross he said i've brought you glory and he speaks about how he did it by revealing who you are and as we reveal god in our parenting and as our children obey us as parents or us as children obeying our parents 
I believe God is glorified in that. Like, I tell you what, sometimes when I go to the shopping centers in Dubai and I see the children acting in the way they do, there is no glory to God in the way that chaos goes on. The second reason is it enables us to live orderly and peaceful lives and have order and peace in our home and our society. There's, there's, sometimes we go and we visit people in their homes. None of you here, obviously, because you guys are amazing. When I've been to your home, everything about you is just 100%. But um, no, maybe one or two of you. But when, I, when we go into homes and we, and we just see homes that are chaos, and one home I remember Linda and I particularly going to, I'll definitely not mention the person's name or give you any clue who they are, but this, the house was in chaos. The kids were running the house. The walls were dirty. There were no, it was just like their fingerprints were everywhere. There, were the, there was no peace in the home. They had like boarding up to try and keep kids out of different parts of the house. And I thought, and it's not John's house, just so you know. And I, and I thought to myself, holy, you could see it was out of control. And the thing is, God wants us to have orderly lives because it, number one, stops the devil getting a foothold in our lives. When there is chaos in, any, in your life, in your inner life, when there's chaos in your marriage and there's chaos in your home, the enemy's able to get a foothold in there. And actually, our job is not to create cycles of brokenness because when the devil gets a foothold into our lives, that's when... He brings his brokenness. That's when, I mean, sometimes I, I, I remember somebody doing this comparison of, um, I think it was like, I don't know, it was Jonathan Edwards or something, the great um, evangelist. And then there was some other dude who, who was a train robber or something like this. And they went down and they looked at his family and there was like doctors and, and philanthropists and, and carers and also just wonderful. Um, there was no divorce down the whole line. And then this bank robber dude, his, it was just like murderers and rapists and, and generation after generation after generation. And the point it was making is that we, we can start cycles of blessing or start cycles of chaos in our families. And God wants us to have order in our families so we pass the order on to the next generation and to the next generation and so on. Secondly, it creates an opportunity, to, opportunity for the gospel to be proclaimed when there's order. In 1 Timothy 2 verse 2 to 4, Paul says that we would Lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and, and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, friends, I'm not saying that your home should be like a morgue at all. Our home is crazy noisy. My wife is the quietest one in the home. Every other Hutton has got a loud voice and an over-exuberant per personality. And, and I'm not, there should be laughter and fun and chaos and wrestling and, not chaos, and wrestling, ordered godly chaos maybe um but it should be a place where where there is order where there is submission to authority in the home and um and when that happens i believe the gospel can come in i was um actually i'm not going to tell the story I, I promised my son i wouldn't tell too many stories about him tonight in genesis 18 verse 19 um god speaking of abraham who's the father of of our faith the bible calls him that and the father of the covenant and and uh, it's he, he Here's one of the, at least one of the reasons why he chose Abraham. And he says this in Genesis 18. He says, I've singled him out so that he will direct his sons and their families to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Then I will do for Abraham all that I've promised. And what he promised to Abraham was that he would bless Abraham so that he could be a blessing to the world. And I believe part of my mandate, our mandate as a husband and wife, mother and father, in raising our children is this. We should... Um, teach them, direct them to keep the ways of the Lord. And then they will take that on from our two 
comes three with their wives and their children and, and the, the, the gospel advances. It's one of the most apostolic things we can do is to make sure the gospel, there's order in our homes that the gospel, gospel might go into our children. The second thing that we see from the, these, um, this pair of verses is that um, parenting is, a, is an emerging partnership. When Paul writes this, he says, children obey your parents. Now, it would be wonderful if when our children were really small, they cared what it said. Do you know what I mean? Like you go to your two-year-old and you go, listen, Bobby, it says in the Bible, children obey your parents. And he just went, oh, you're right, mom. What was I thinking? I'm definitely not going to throw those toys around. I'm definitely going to pick up. He doesn't care nothing about what Colossians 2 verse 20 says. He's doing his own thing. It's your job to take him on that journey. But there comes a point in the journey. Go to the next slide, please. Uh, okay, well, I'll, I'll get to this now. I'm, I'm ahead in my thinking. There comes a point in the journey, though, where it shifts over, where they can actually take responsibility for their own actions. So there's this, it actually starts off where it's all on you. Kevin and Barbara, when that baby comes, it's all on you, all on you to parent child. And then it comes to a point, actually, where they become partners with you in the parenting. And Paul's words to them become profoundly relevant. And so I will... Um, Ethan can understand this. He goes, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And because he wants to please the Lord, he does it. And while the Bible has a lot of good stuff to say about children, in fact, it says we are the children of God, which is a great thing to be. It says that we have faith like children, that kind of not complicated, not, you know, checking everything. Just, I trust you, Lord. Even as Shelly shared about it tonight, in the middle of the storm, I feel like everything's like going crazy, but I'm hanging on, I'm just going to trust you like this, like a child, like a, a faith, like a child. But it also goes on to speak about ways in which children aren't, um, what's the right word? Uh, right, good. Uh, well, that's not the right word. They're not adults, let me put it that way. So he says this, for example, in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. And what he's saying is that children are immature in their thinking. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 13 to talk about the fact that children have partial and incomplete knowledge. It's, it's hard to believe this because every 16-year-old is absolutely certain they have all the knowledge in the world. It's like that T-shirt that used to be around. Ask your child or use your child while they're still a teenager and they know everything. It's kind of when they're that age, they think they know everything. It's why I have a conversation with my children about sex before their friends have the conversation with them about sex because all the friends at school think they know everything everything they can possibly know about sex and um i instruct my children that i'm having a lot more sex than their friends at school i, I hope i am anyway certainly at the, t- the age i told them the story i was definitely doing it um matthew was 10 so hopefully that was the case and uh, they don't have full knowledge but we do when they're making decisions they think look but it's going to be fine this will be perfect if we do it this way no no we but there's things we know sometimes when child comes to you and says, I want to go sleep over at a friend's house. It'll be absolutely fine. And there's things that you know, not, not like you specifically know that family, but you know that this world is a dangerous place and you don't have peace about it. And you just say, it's not going to be happening. You need, we need a, our children aren't adults yet. We're not supposed to treat our children at this age as if they're just little short adults. They're not. They're immature in their thinking. They're partial, incomplete knowledge. Galatians 4, verse 1 to 2, speaks about the fact that they are still dependent upon us. They are. If you don't feed them, they're done for. for it's just one thing. And that's even when they're 16. And then, um, and then Ephesians 4, 14 says this. 
So we must no longer be like children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and by deceitful schemes. Children are easily misled, and they can be inconsistent in their thinking. And obviously this changes as they grow older. You're, you don't treat your six-year-old the way that you treat your six-year-old, but there is a, a, this, this, you have a responsibility to bring them to the place where they're ready to handle those things in the world. There's a reason why you don't let your three-year-old cross the road on his own. I mean, he knows the road's dangerous. And he, he know, he's seen cars before. Well, he should be able to get across there. He's not going to make it, people. Grab his hand. It's like, that's the thing. But when he's 16 or 13, in Ethan's case, like, don't hold my hand. Oh, we're in public now. That ain't happening. And I don't need to because the partnership has begun. And uh, I think, go to the next slide, please. I think this moving towards the 18th birthday or whatever age it is that our children achieve independence. I'm saying 18, although Matthew is still receiving money in his bank account from me. So he's 18, but he's still um, responsible towards me. But if I continue to treat him as if he were 16 or 13, I'm going to provoke him. That's why Paul says, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. In the parallel verse in Ephesians 6 verse 4, he says, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And so we're to raise them up to the point where they do function with independence. And it's, it's probably a little bit easier for dads, I think, than it might be for mothers. I can remember when um, our kids wanted to head out on the, on the metros for the first time on their own. And Linda was like, I'm not, like Hannah came one time and said, I'm going to go in the metro and go join my friends at the mall and, and go, have, uh, go watch a movie. And she came and asked us, and, she, and we both answered exactly the same time. Yeah, sure, was my answer. No way, it was Linda's answer. And, we, and that's why God puts us together in there, is for the dads to have the final decision. And so they went to, went to the mall. And um, so now let's talk about how we parent biblically. And just a couple of things in here. Number one is, friends, you've got to do it. You've got to parent. This is a, a sacred responsibility that's been given to you as a mom or a dad to parent your children. It is, um, you're not going to be able to get to heaven one day and say, well, you know what, God, I, I read the book by Dr. Spock, and he said I should just give my children a whole lot of freedom, and, and I did, and it, they turned out a bit of a mess, but, you know, well, what could I do? You have been mandated by God to raise your children, to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul gives the qualifications for elders and for deacons, and in those qualifications, it's, uh, it's clear in there that we've got to be able to lead our kids well. Our kids must be submitted to us. We have to manage them as part of our household, the Bible says. And you might think, well, that's perfect because that's a standard for the elders, and I don't need to meet that standard because I'm just an ordinary saint. But there's a whole lot of other things that it says in there for elders, like we're not supposed to get drunk. And it doesn't mean that because you're not an elder, well, that's cool. I'm off the hook. I can go get drunk tonight. It makes no difference. It's obvious when you read through the qualifications that actually these are qualifications for every believer. It says the, the elder should, and the deacon should be the husband of but one wife. Oh, well, cool. I'm not an elder or a deacon. I'm going to have myself three or four wives. It's no problem. No, no. These are the, this is the standard of living that all of us should function with. The elders just can be without exception because they're supposed to be modeling this for those that are new in the faith and progressing in the faith to be able to live that kind of life as well. And so the, the, the mandate upon us is to, um, is to lead our children, to bring them up in the, to use Paul's words, the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. I uh, 
uh, one of the guys that I've enjoyed listening to on the internet of late is a guy by the name of Jordan B. Peterson. And um, he's written a book here called The 12 Rules for Life. I'm about halfway through it. And um, I, 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 I really do enjoy the way that he thinks. He's not a believer. He, um, he quotes from the Bible all the time, but he understands it only as a sacred text. He doesn't believe that it actually is that, that God is God. He, he doesn't believe. In chapter 7, he's talked on the meaning of life, and he completely botches it to death because how can you have a meaningful discussion about the meaning of life when it's only about us in this life and doesn't speak about the life to come and the God who created the heavens and the earth? His idea of Jesus is that he's a picture of the perfect man, but not that he was literally our savior or anything like that. But he writes this chapter five, which is rule number five, and the, the heading of the chapter is, do not let your children do anything that makes you dislike them. I go for a good chapter. Do not let your children do anything that makes you dislike them. And I'm gonna quote him quite a bit in this section because, well, number one, he's, he's, he is sharp as a tack. He has got an incredibly good mind. He thinks through things unbelievably. He's a clinical psychologist and a, and a psychology professor. He's been in practice for decades and, and lecturing for decades. This is um, people and um, uh, particularly families are areas of his expertise. And, uh, and what he says correlates with the scripture. And I think whenever science has ideology removed from it, it, it will always end up um, confirming what scripture says. What God says about the human nature will be confirmed if we had perfect science, it would, it would confirm exactly that. What God says about the world, science will confirm it at the end of the day. What it's not clear on, well, we don't have to worry about that stuff because science can say whatever it wants. So it's got no, it says nothing about whether we should be using fossil fuels or not, I don't think, in Scripture. So whatever, we can listen to the scientists. If you believe that global warming is real, well, then drive a Prius or some hybrid car. If you don't, then drive a car like mine that has um, a V8 and eats petrol like it's for fun. And, um, and, I, and so I love, I love that he affirms what the scripture says, even though it's not his goal to necessarily do that. And listen to what he says about us accepting our responsibility as parents. He says about parenting and disciplining, he said, it's an act of responsibility to discipline a child. It is not anger at misbehavior. It is not revenge for a misdeed. It is instead a careful combination of mercy and long-term judgment. Proper discipline requires effort. Indeed, it is virtually synonymous with effort. It is difficult to figure out what is wrong and what is right and why. I'm not entirely sure that's true um, because for us, it's not that difficult. We do have the Bible. God lays out clearly for us what is right and what is wrong. And so we can come into it with a whole lot of confidence. But this is true. It is difficult to formulate just and compassionate strategies of discipline and to negotiate the application with others deeply involved in child's care, in a child's care. You know that moment when you're wanting to take um, little Bobby to the bathroom to give him a um, tensioning moment, and Granny's there, and she goes, oh, don't do that to him. It's like, it's like, don't get involved in what's going on here. Or maybe your husband or your wife has a completely different idea of the way discipline should take place, and there's negotiation. He says this, though, because of this combination of responsibility and difficulty, any suggestion that all constraints placed on children are damaging can be perversely welcome. And many are teaching this today that our children should have no constraints upon them. They are like these blank slates that should be allowed to emerge into the full blossoming gifts that they are. And he says that such a notion once accepted allows adults who should know better to abandon their duty to serve as agents of enculturation 
and better pretend that doing so, and better allows them to pretend that doing so is good for children. It is a deep and pernicious act of self-deception. It's lazy, cruel, and inexcusable. And friends, if you are not raising your children deliberately, if you are not raising them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, you are lazy, cruel, and it is inexcusable. That's number one. You just got to do it. Number two is you got to love, and you got to love unconditionally. Um, it's most of the time, this is not a hard thing to do. When you see that baby for the first time, it's like, holy moly, this thing's ugly, but I'm sure it's going to start looking more beautiful sooner. No, it's not true. Every parent looks down at their baby and they're like, oh, it's so amazing. And then they show it to people that aren't related. They go, look how beautiful my baby is. And you go, because the right thing to do, people, if you didn't know this, you go, wow, that's a beautiful baby. Even when they're not. I mean, I remember thinking when I saw Matthew for the first time, he is the most beautiful baby I'd ever seen. I look back at the baby photographs now, little orangutans. I'm telling you, nah, what's going on here? What's going on with this child? We, we went to visit my cousin, had a baby in the UK when we were there in August. And I walked in and I couldn't stop cha- staring at this baby. It got a bit embarrassing. Then they had to kind of pull me away because they had a bit of a difficult birth and they had to use forceps and he had a cone head. I've never seen anything like that in my life before. It's like, whoop, like, I'm like, and going on here like this. And the, the mother's going, oh, my baby's so beautiful. And she strokes this long head like this. I'm like, what is going on here? You see, God's put something in us that we just fall in love with our cone-headed orangutan babies. It doesn't matter. We love them. It's what he, what's inside of us. For most of us, it's natural. The thing is, though, they will become difficult. You take them home, Barbara, and they... And they will endeavor to make your life a living misery for the next season. They will cry. They will want to be fed. They will poop. They will poop just after you've just cleaned them from pooping the first time. They'll poop while you're changing them. They will, they will wake you up at night, and they'll not let you sleep. At the moment when you actually are now unable to sleep, then they will fall asleep for hours. And then when you desperately want to sleep, they'll wake up at exactly that moment. And then they'll become teenagers. And so they, it, it feels like at times like there's this wrestle of they, they, they're fighting against us. If you, you, you settle, number one, in your heart that you are there to love your children, you love them. It doesn't mean that you have to even like them. I'll come to that in a moment because sometimes you won't, but you are going to love them. This is the place where they are accepted even if nowhere else they are. Maybe you're whatever. I don't want to go into body parts and things like that. But I love what um, Paul says in um, in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 7 and 11 to 12, he says this, But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And then he says um, in verse 11 and 12, Like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. God puts us together as mother and father because he actually, both of those aspects have to be reflected over our children. I am so profoundly grateful that I get to do this with Linda. I think that I'm a good dad, but a good dad is not enough. And I think that Linda is an outstanding mom, but as it turns out, not even being an outstanding mom on her own is good enough. And part of it is because there's times that we need to do WWF on our children. It's like there's a wrestling match going on and they've got me pinned against the ropes like this. And, I'm, and Linda's saying, tag me, tag me in. And I, and I tag her like this. She climbs in and she sorts out the children. Because there's moments where it becomes too much for us or um, or my personality takes me too far in one direction, and I'm grateful that we get to do this in team, and it brings us backwards. Gentle like a mother, nursing a child, exhorting, encouraging, urging like a father to live um, the, all the best for God. 
One of the, the best books that I've read about loving our children, about expressing the love, was a book Rika actually gave to me, I think, called Grace-Based Parenting by Tim Kimmel. And um, I kind of, there's times when I, I open a book and I think it's like, I've read books on men before, so I thought, oh, same old, same old. And then you get into reading and it's something so fresh and wonderful. And it was the same thing with this book as well. And the basic premise of this book is that God's grace allows us to be who he's made us to be. He doesn't put us into a box. He doesn't make us a particular shape. He's not a cookie cutter. Uh, make. He's not a cookie maker with a cutter like bing, 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 bing like this. And so there are, there are attributes, or not attributes, there are attitudes and chari- character traits I want my children to carry. I want them to be honest. I want them to be brave and all of those sorts of things. And I, that I want to impart. But they don't have to live, they don't have to be me. Do you know what I mean? They don't have to, I don't, like, like Ethan's a great example. I, somebody must have stood on my compassion gene when I was a young baby or something like that because they, they crushed that thing. So I don't worry too much about pain. I, I, not in myself or in other people. It's like, for me, it's, I see the practical benefit of pain in people's lives. And so you go through a hard time. I think myself, well, I know you're learning something. So actually, in many ways, it's good. Do you know what I mean? It's like, so when my children walk into the house, and there's no blood, there's something's happened, but there's no blood. I, I just, I'm not that moved by it, you know. But if I had to come in and I've got like, say, a bandage on my knee or something, Ethan will leap out of the chair and come to me. Dad, what's wrong? Are you okay? Because he's full of compassion. He's different to me in that way. And there's aspects of him that are, that because he's so compassionate, there's a, there's a vulnerability in him to fear as well. And I want to make him brave and I want to make him courageous, but I never want to make him lose that compassion part of him. And unconditionally loving our kids and exercising grace towards them allows them to be who God wants them to be. They don't have to be like Linda or like I, except in the ways, those characteristics that reflect God. But in their style, their personality, I want them to be who they are. I want them to make the choices in their lives that reflect who they are. And, um, and I believe that's what unconditional love means. And I've got 15 minutes. Discipline and instruction. When we, when we go back to that first quote that I read from Jordan Peterson, this is where godly parents um, stand and, and, have to, and are counted because this is where the resistance comes. And um, Hebrews 12, verse 8 and verse 11, you can go read the whole lot, but I'm just going to read those two verses, says, If you are left without discipline, you are, an illegitimate, you are illegitimate children and not sons. And there's, there's such a clear thing here that, that both in God's dealings with us and our dealings with our children, that if they, if they are ours, if we're going to love them like they're ours, we must discipline them. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later ye- yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And as we go through this course this process, this life with our children of disciplining them and instructing them in the, in the truth and the ways of the Lord, they will, there are times where it will feel difficult and painful. Like when your children are between two and four years old, that is a, it's an intense time of wrestling, especially if you've got strong-willed children, which I'll get to in a moment, of wrestling with their personalities. But you've, you've got to stick to the task because it will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Proverbs 22 verse 6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And um, in Acts 20, verse 20, Paul says to the Ephesian elders, he says, I've, I've not hesitated to teach you anything that I thought would be helpful to you. Or the ESV says that would be profitable to you. And friends, we've got to be like that towards our children. Don't 
when, you're, when you start talking to your child about sex, the, the, the reaction is going to be, don't worry about that. I, I know everything. I know everything like this. Whatever. I'm not hesitating to teach you anything that's going to be helpful to you. And so I talk to my kids. It drives Ethan, Ethan crazy. I normally do it when we're driving in the car because he can't leap out because we're moving. And, um, and he'll beg me to stop talking, but I just keep going because I'm going to instruct him on everything that will prove helpful to him. The other day we had a conversation around abortion. Can you believe my poor kid? Eh? <laughs> He's like, I said, boy, what is, your, what is your attitude towards abortion? He goes, no, it's wrong. I said, why is it wrong? And, and you might say, well, what the heck? He's 13. Why would you talk to him about that? He's going to go on and live in this broken world. And I trust he follows the Lord in every step along the way. But, but I don't know where his journey might take him. And I don't, I, God forbid this would ever happen, that he would end up sleeping with somebody that before he's married with them and that she should fall pregnant. But if that does happen, I want him to know, in fact, I want him to know even before he gets to that temptation that there's a risk. And if this happens, there's no easy way out of this thing because that's a life in that room. That thing matters. And just to say this, I have actually never preached a message on abortion. I don't know why, because it's something that, that aches inside of me. It's, it is such a terrible thing. That, that is a life in the room. That is not a political um, decision as to whether abortion is right and wrong. Abortion is murder. Abortion is taking a life. And friends, if you have ever been through that, and, and, and uh, it's a, a distinct possibility that there are out of the number of people in this room that, that there will be people that have been through that thing. It is, there are times in our lives we do things that are wrong and out of shame we kind of hide them away. What we've got to do is when we do something wrong, we bring it into the light, we bring it before the Lord, we deal with it, we repent of it, we allow His redemptive work to begin to take place in our lives. And with that comes a healing and a freedom that we can't get by just hiding it away or rationalizing it away. Abortion is not God's plan for anybody's life. And, um, and if that's been something that you've walked in, then I want to invite you to find someone that you can trust or one of the leaders that I'm telling you can trust that you can walk through that process of confession and healing and forgiveness, etc. for God. Does that make sense? A couple of things under this now. Children are not blank slates. Um, there was, there was a, a, a philosopher who had this idea and taught this idea that we were actually intrinsically good. We're not... Um, we're not we were created in the image of God, and we understand from Scripture that we have fallen, and we inherit Adam's sinful nature. It comes through the, the bloodline like this. Christ doesn't inherit that bloodline because he was born to a virgin. He doesn't have his father's bloodline coming. He has the, he has, um, the divine um, bloodline, the Spirit of God. Uh, and so that's why the, the doctrine of the virgin birth is so profoundly important. Christ didn't come with the sinful nature like all of us come with. And that's why it says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, including little Bobby that was born two days ago. He has a, he has a sinful, fallen nature. But the message that's gone out into much of parenting books and parenting thinking these days is that this is a perfect blank slate. And all you have to do is not mess it up. Friends, it is not true. This plant is going to grow skewed. It's going to grow wrong. And what your job is as, you, as it's growing is you're going to shape it and make sure it stays in the right way. If you leave it to run by itself, it's going to run in all the wrong directions. Listen to what um, Gordon Peterson says. He says, but human beings are evil as well as good. And the darkness that dwells forever in our souls is also there in no small part in our younger selves. You wonder why this guy isn't saved, eh? 
Because children, like other human beings, are not only good, they cannot be left to their own devices, untouched by society, and bloom into perfection. This means that they are as much more likely to go completely astray if they are not trained, disciplined, and properly encouraged. Which leads to my second point, that doing nothing is not an option. Let me read from him again. Children can be damaged as much as much or more by lack of attention as they are by abuse, mental, and physical. Listen to this, friends. Our children can be damaged as much by um, lack of attention, by you not raising them the way that they're supposed to be raised, by you not putting the discipline and structure of the Lord into lives, as by physical or mental abuse. You think of David's son. It says of, of David that he, he never interfered in his life. One of David's sons ended up raping one of David's daughters. There is, there is a brokenness that can come if we do not interfere in the lives of our children. He says, this is damaged by mission rather than commission. What we don't do rather than what we do do. But it is no less severe and long-lasting. Children are damaged when their mercifully inattentive parents fail to make them sharp and observant and awake and leave them instead in an unconscious and undifferentiated state. Children are damaged when those charged with their care, afraid of any conflict or upsetting them, no longer dare to correct them and leave them without guidance. I can recognize his children on the streets, he says. They are doughy and unfocused and vague. They are leaden and dull instead of golden and bright. They are uncarved blocks trapped in a perpetual state of waiting to be. I read a book years ago by a a man named Dr. Robert Shaw. He's a clinical, family clinical psychiatrist. He's got like, you know, stuff this long behind his name. Um, That hospital, that university, um, incredibly... um, what learned man. And he wrote a book called The Epidemic. And he used almost the same words to describe those that were coming out of homes where they have not been trained up and disciplined and instructed uh, in the ways of the Lord. So that means, which is my, my last point, that we have to have a biblical strategy on how to discipline and instruct our children. And it, it, it varies depending on our children. Obviously, we, we're all different. Our children are different. And I think... I just want to give you an advice for any book that you want to read. That one that I mentioned, Grace-Based Parenting on on Parenting, is outstanding. I'm sure you've got some as well, but these are mine. Any book by James Dobson. I mean, honestly, literally any of his books you can read and you can trust. But in one of his books, he talks about the difference between compliant children and strong-willed children. And compliant children are those children that just, they want to please you. Do you know what I mean? It's like like we were friends like this from South Africa, and um, their eldest daughter, Kristen, was like this. Like her dad or mom said any like, Kristen, that was, it wasn't right what you did. She'd be like, broken. What? What's her, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, I'll do it. I'll, I'll do it properly next time. Like, I've got to eat that. I say, Ethan, that's not right. He goes, whatever, hiding. The next week, daddy would say, it's still not right. Whatever, hiding. Like, for, for years, this kind of goes on. Strong-willed child, compliant child. Dealing with them in one strategy, dealing with them in another strategy. And uh, God gives us ways, and I'll, I'll talk about these in a moment, some of the, the ideas that might be helpful in dealing with our children. But friends, we have to come up with a strategy, even if it's not explicitly thought out, it needs to be in your heart. This is how I'm going to raise this child. When Samson was promised to his mom and dad, the, the, the father wasn't there, so the mom got the promise. And then he said, now call the guy back again, the angel of the Lord, because I want to ask him something. So they, somehow they called the angel back. I can't remember how they did it. Then they prayed. They came back again. They said these incredible words. What will be the rule of life? 
for this boy's, what will be the rule for this boy's life? How do we bring him up? What are we supposed to do with him? I think we should ask that about all of our children. Lord, how do I bring this child up? What is the rule for their life? And um, he, has, he has two steps for you. Number one, limit the rules. I say all the time, um, with, when Lynn and I are talking about the kids, is let's not put a rule in place that we're not going to enforce. Because if you're not going to fight for it, don't put it in place. Don't say no unless you're ready for war, baby. Because he or she is going to test whether that no matters or not. And so if you go, if, if your son's like milling around the house doing something, you go, Johnny, I want you to stop doing that now. And you're lying on the couch and you think you're going to have a quiet little afternoon. Unless you've done a lot of pre-work, get ready for your quiet afternoon to go. So decide whether you really want him to stop doing that thing. Because he's probably just doing whatever he wants to do. But when you do decide there's no friends, then, then, then you've got to step up your game. And you can't let it slide. I'll let it slide this time. I'll let it slide that time. I'll let it slide that time. Consistency is one of the keys to parenting. So, so limit the rules. Don't put too many in place. Make sure that you have, um, you have an idea in your mind of how you want your children to behave. Gordon Peterson comes up with a list, which I quite like. He's, his reasons for these are all practical. They're not biblical. And, and you might be able to write your own list up. But there's quite a few on here that I will take for myself as well. Do not bite, kick or hit except in self-defense. Great rule. Do not torture or bully other children so you don't end up in jail. It's a good idea. Eat in a civilized and thankful manner so that people are happy to have you in their house and pleased to feed you. Learn to share so other kids will play with you. Pay attention when spoken to by adults so they don't hate you and might therefore deign to teach you something. Go to sleep properly and early so that your parents can have a private life and not resent your existence. <laughs> That's your job. That's a rule you've got to put in place. He talks about, actually in this book, about putting his son to sleep. And uh, he's a psychologist, so he knows, he knows when he's doing damage. Because the problem is with many parents is they think if, if Bobby cries for 10 seconds, he's going to probably be damaged for life and die. It's actually good for your children to cry. Do you know that? opens their lungs up it gets their blood i'm not even joking it does all these good things for them and so you leave them in the room crying for an hour it's fine because when you're going to train them how to sleep not for an hour but you you're going to you're going to go in every couple of minutes making sure he's okay you're you're fine like tap on that and then you walk out again he cries again you got to train them to be able to sleep but you've got to but you can't be and so he talks about this it took him a couple of nights and then his kid goes to sleep every time and uh, you can do it too just most people give up too soon the children have lost them take care of your belongings because you need to learn how and you're lucky to have them teach them that as well especially in this materialistic society Ethan got some soccer boots last year he loved them got them for Christmas and um, he left them at the park and when he went to go find them they were gone and uh, he's getting those same boots again this Christmas because and he loves soccer. He plays soccer several times a week, but he's not getting it for free because there they were and he didn't learn how to look after them. Can I afford to buy him a new pair of boots? I could easily afford to buy them. That's not the point. I want him to learn something. And this Christmas, he's going to get the same boots again, different color. Be good company when something fun is happening so that you're invited for fun. Act so other people are happy that you're around so people will want you around. A child who knows these rules will be welcome anywhere. The next thing is use the least force necessary. And uh, this obviously changes with age. Put up the next slide, please. And so the discipline part um, begins to decrease as our children get older. I can't remember the last time 
I've had to take one of my children, spank him. I've uh, probably two or three times in the last two or three years because they're at the age now where that discipline line is right down there. Um, if you'd asked me when they were younger, it would have been two or three times in the last two or three hours. It just, just it felt like it was like consistent, just like a constant wrestle around it. Um, but we stuck with it, and we were consistent with it. We weren't going to give up on it because we, we now reap the benefits of it. Now the line, the instruction's high, the talking, the reasoning with is much higher. And there comes a time when they out of our home, and we have, we have access only as we're invited into their lives to speak. Take advantage of the time that you do have. And uh, you need it. Is my time up? What, what happened there? You guys have been stealing my time. Let me just, I'll jump into two things here. One is um, to use the minimum possible force. And, that, and there are different strategies. I think things like obviously speaking to your children and they might listen. That's my experience in this church is that your children are not listening when you speak to them. Some of you need to take it the next step, yeah, which is to deprive them of something. If they're old enough especially, so you can say to your children, that, that um, whatever, I'm taking it away from you. And um, Ethan lost his Xbox this week. It's been sitting on our shelf in our bedroom for the week, and I said it would be done until he can only get it back on Sunday. And Sunday's the day he doesn't have any time to play on the Xbox. It really is going to be Monday. And he has asked me like 20 times, how about Thursday? How about Friday? How about Saturday? And I said to him, my boy, I'm not backing off. I need to know I was happy with the time period I've taken, and I'm not going to go any further. He's learning something. It actually is teaching him something. And as they get older, that becomes a, a strategy. Timeouts is a strategy. I have an issue with timeouts. I'll tell you what it is in a moment. And then there's obviously spanking. Here's my issue with timeouts is um, if you do anything properly, that's fine. But most people don't actually do timeouts or spanking properly. That's been my experience. So what happens is when you take your kid and he's done something wrong and you put him on the step and, you, and he's a timeout and he sits there muttering under his breath and kicking the step like this or whatever it is, I think what's happening is just, there's just resentment and there's just rebellion in the heart of the child. You are doing nothing but letting it fester in them for that time. If that happens and they kick that step, they go to stage two, which is in using the, the, the least force necessary, which is to take them to the bathroom. That's what I recommend. We have a place where our children get a spanking. They don't get spanked anywhere in the house other than the bathroom, unless I need some real, and then the bathroom's too small. But generally it would be in, no, it is always in the bathroom. Don't listen to what I'm saying here. And uh, some people say, well, we can't discipline our kids like that because um, force is ne or physical punishment is never justified. And uh, that if we hit our children, we teach them how to hit others and use force as well. I want to read just a little bit of what he says in here about this. He says, to hold the no excuse for physical punishment theory is fifthly, because this is the fifth out of a number of points that he makes, to assume that the word no can be effectively uttered to another person in the absence of a threat of punishment. What means no in the final analysis is always, if you continue to do that, something you do not like will happen to you, or it means nothing. Or worse, it means another nonsensical thing muttered by ignorable adults. I see those kids all the time wandering around. When I was in Sri Lanka preaching the one time, I had that David was there with his grandson who has not known the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I just want to say that that is evident in this little kid's life. I've met him before several times, and I've, I've felt like... Anyway, I'm preaching, and he goes for the plug. Stick a finger into the plug socket, and because they don't want him to have hair that sticks up like this, they obviously can't stop him from putting his finger in the plug, and they make him sit down again. So what does he do? Obviously, 
what's he going to do? He's going to go back to the plug again. He wants to put his finger in there. They grab him. They put him down again. They say, no, 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 don't do that. He goes again to the plug again. They take him. They put him down again. I'm preaching. This is going on backwards and forwards. It's a little bit distracting. So the fourth time he goes to the plug, I walk over. Don't worry, I'll get this one. I take his little hand. I smack it like this. He starts crying. I take his little grandson, and I put him down in the chair like this. Guess what he never does again? Goes for the plug. You can't say no unless you're prepared to enforce it. And the reason why I don't need to take him to the bathroom is because he's too small to understand the correlation between that thing and what's to come. Right there and then when they're small, you give them a little tap like this man. Hard enough that they don't enjoy it, but, but, uh, but not obviously hard enough to do any damage to them. He goes on, he says this, what about the idea that hitting a child merely teaches them to hit? First, no, wrong, too simple. For starters, hitting is a very unsophisticated word to describe the disciplinary act of an effective parent. Magnitude matters, and so does context. Friends, I put love in place first because you, you shouldn't be spanking your children unless they know you love them. And when they know you love them and then you spank them, they know you love them even more. I'm, I, I know Neil said to me afterwards this morning, one of the guys in the morning congregation says, you know what it is? It hurts us more than it hurts them when we spank them. I said, that's a load of rubbish. It doesn't hurt me at all. I'm absolutely fine when I spank them. What, what are you talking about? It hurts you. Are you hitting yourself or something? I said, it's supposed to hurt them, Neil. That's the whole point about discipline. I don't hurt at all because I know what it's doing. See, I know what it's shaping inside of them. It's a gift that I give them. One time, Matthew came back from the UK. had been to visit family, and uh, I'm really landing now with this. And he, uh, and he, um, man, he had come back sullen, like a like a like a bad teenager. But he was only 11, and he had um, he'd been with his undisciplined cousins. That had they had no discipline in their family, and he caught their disease. Kids catch these diseases. It's not just running noses. Anyway, so this went on for a while, and I thought to myself, well, he's becoming a teenager, puberty's hitting, hormones, we give him a bit of grace. I didn't, I, I mean, I know, I didn't think it would be 11, but I was trying to explain it to myself, you know. Actually, a couple of months went by of this, and I would speak to him about it, but the, the sullenness and moodiness, and so one night I'm lying in bed with him, I'm tickling him before he goes to bed, and he kind of, ah, leave me alone, Dad, like this. And I said, my boy, you go to the bathroom right now. And I knew it, 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 it had crossed, it was too far. And so I, um, I had to warm up my shoulder. I needed to make sure this was going to be a proper one. I took the wooden spoon. Um, I held it on the end. I wanted as much leverage as I could possibly Because he was going to get, tonight, he was going to get a, a proper spanking. And I gave him two on his butt that I don't think he's going to forget too soon. It's, it's, I promise you, it's not going to kill them. The, the marks were gone in the short time. That's why God gives us this. It's not actually for sitting on. It's only for that purpose. It's got a lot of fat around it. It's glutamus maximus. It's hard to miss it. It's perfect. And, um, and normally what I'll do with my kids in the bathroom is I'll say, like, we'll talk it through, we'll pray together, we'll finish, we'll hug, we'll, it's all reconciled, but not that night. It, been, and I put my finger in his chest and I said to him, my boy, God has asked one person to lead this family and he's not you, it's me. And I promise you, you will not allow your moodiness and this and that and whatever, but I've got to bed. There's no smiling in this bathroom. And then I came out and I said to Linda, hey, babe, you better go check on him because I, I, I mean I realized it was a hard moment it was like a real confrontational moment but Linda goes in and she comes out a few minutes later and she says I said is he alright and she goes well he says he knows that his sister loves him and he knows that his mother loves him he's just not sure if you love him <laughs> and man I, I really badly I could hardly sleep that night I lay awake I was like Lord have I crossed the line like what do I do and I woke up the next morning still a little bit anxious and my son was back whatever that 
junk was that had got upon him had been driven away. Now, friends, I am not talking about abuse here. Okay, I'm in absolutely clear. There was what I, what, um, when I spanked, it was on his butt cheek like this, and it leaves a stinging mark on his, that's what I go for. It doesn't bruise, it doesn't hit bone, it doesn't hit muscle. You gotta be, I'm being clear with you. I mean, take this seriously. I'm not talking about that here. I've never um, hurt one of my children in any sort of way that leaves any sort of long-term damage to them, but like long-term, I mean a weak damage to them even. And, uh, but it changed. Let me finish with this quote from Jordan Peterson. He says, so where does this all leave us? With a decision to discipline effectively or to discipline ineffectively, but never with a decision to forego discipline altogether because nature and society will punish in draconian anger whatever errors of childhood behavior remain uncorrected. Parents have an obligation to act as proxies, to act, sorry, as proxies, which means like substitute stand-ins for the real world. Merciful proxies, caring proxies, but proxies nonetheless. This obligation supersedes any responsibility to ensure happiness, foster creativity, or boost self-esteem. 2 John 1 verse 4. John writing obviously about believers, but I love the application to our children. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. The ultimate goal for me, because I think you can be an unbeliever and raise your children really well. The ultimate goal for me is that this creates a place for me to share the gospel with them. That out of this ordered place, as they learn to submit to me and to Linda as their parents, it creates a model of loving uh, parents and clear leadership that they learn to submit to their heavenly father as well through access to Christ. And even the times when you go into that bathroom with your children, you say, why are you doing this? And they say, I don't know. That's the perfect moment, friends, to begin to talk about sin and to begin to talk about the heart and the wickedness of our hearts and how we need, we don't need Jesus to come and live in broken hearts. We need new hearts and, and to lead them to the place where they can come in repentance and in salvation and receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. Won't the worship team, yeah, there you go, yeah. Use a microphone for that. Yeah, use this one, babe. Can you hear me? Um, uh, I wasn't going to say anything, but I just feel like um, Rob can get quite passionate about this. Um, and um, it's something that we are, we, we love parenting. Um, we've got great kids. Um, it's been a hard road. We, you know, we have disciplined with spanking and, and even as he stood up here and spoken, I know that there are probably people thinking, oh my goodness, um, that doesn't sound right or whatever. If you, if you as parents don't discipline the way that Rob has spoken about this evening and you're thinking, well, maybe I need to change the way that I discipline, I just want to put it out there that please come if, if you are hesitant or you're not sure how to do it. Because I've seen this with where parents that have, have hurt their children in trying to discipline them. Um, just because they just don't know how to do it. And there are steps that you follow. There. It's, it's an, it's a, it, there's a process in it. But if you, I just want to put it out there. I feel like I need to do that. Um, I, I'm available to come and speak to me about it and, and just ask questions. Um, come to me. <laughs> okay. Um, and even Rob, Rob and I can, can speak to, we can come in and, and speak to both of you know, as, as a husband and wife and as a mom and, mom and dad. But I just want to put that out there just in case there are people sitting here thinking, oh my goodness, I don't know what to do. I don't even know how to start. Um, what do you do? You know, how do you discipline? What do you snap with? Whatever, whatever. Why don't you guys stand with us, please? 
maybe you weren't raised by a, a mom and a dad that were caring and loving and paid attention to you and disciplined you appropriately. Maybe you were ro- raised in a, in a, in a, a divorced family. Maybe you were abused even. I say that is not God the Father. It was not His plan for your life. And if you are carrying that in your life, um, I've been, one of the things I believe the, the Lord wants to do is He wants to heal you so that you might not carry that into your parenting one day. Or if you have, that He can heal you so that He can break it off of your parenting and begin to allow restoration and healing to take place. Does that make sense, eh? And if you are a parent, what Linda said, don't. Um, it's, it's, a lo- it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. It's not, don't like flash tomorrow and like, oh, we, I'll be the great parent tomorrow, but, but will you be the great parent the week after and the week after? Don't worry, like I've made some mistakes. It's okay, you can pick it up from here. And, um, and it's not too hard. It's not too hard. You have what it takes to raise the children God's way. Every one of us does. Sometimes we, we make mistakes, but, but we have what it takes. Maybe we need some friends, some allies, like Linda was talking about, some advice and counsel. Maybe we need to deal with some of the, the darkness inside of us by the Spirit of God. But you have what it takes with the Spirit of God to raise our children in a way that brings glory to the King. I'm gonna pray over us, and we're gonna sing a song of worship, and then we're gonna fellowship together. Okay. Father, thank you for who you are, Lord God. And, and Father, if in my um, zeal and passion, um, I, um, I scared some people, I pray that you would comfort them, Lord God. But I pray, Lord, that none of the conviction to, uh, to go to this task with all of our strength and will and wisdom would be lost. I pray for every parent, Lord, even if they've got grown-up children. Um, I pray for every single parent that is uh, raising kids now. I pray for um, pray for those that will parent into the future. I pray for you to enable them, anoint them even, Lord God, for this task that you've given them to do. Every single parent is an expert, as it were, in raising children. They are the right ones for those children. Their personalities, their um, their gifting, all of those things, Lord God, their strengths are what is those children require. And Lord, I want to pray for those that have been raised um, in a way that has left scars on their hearts, Lord God, either through inattention or through abuse, Lord God. And I want to pray that you'd come by with your Holy Spirit tonight and just minister to them, Lord. Lord, nothing's been unseen by you. Nothing was done in the dark and hidden away from you. You saw it all. There's mercy and there's grace available. There's, there's, um, there's forgiveness. Maybe for them to receive and most likely for them to have to give to others, Lord God, that flows from your grace. There's healing, Lord God. There's restoration. Invite you now, Holy Spirit, just come on to each person, Lord God, that is reaching out to you for that tonight and just minister over them, Lord God. And Father, I break the cycle in the name of Jesus tonight. I break cycles of, of, um, of abuse and I break cycles of 
absence and, and uh, in, inattention, Lord God. Abdication. I break those things now in the name of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would be glorified in the, the, the families of this church, that they would reflect you, Lord God, in every possible way. In Jesus' name I pray.